in December of 1945 in New York, the famed physicist Albert Einstein um, gave the following address. Ladies and gentlemen, the, the Nobel anniversary celebration takes on a special significance this year. Well, after our deadly struggle of many years, we are at peace again, or what we are supposed to consider as peace. And it bears a still more significant significance for the physicist who, in one way or another, were connected with the construction of the use of the atomic bomb. I have to interject there. I didn't give much of a, I suppose, a rundown before I started the speech. And there you get a bit of an insight. Here we have a speech coming towards the end of the Second World War and Albert Einstein, who's a representative of the Jews and also the physicists, really, at that time. You know, so there's a lot that he has, and he's also had to escape his own country. So, you know, through this whole process, um, you know, we're getting an insight into, you know, the, the difficulty of those who were part of creating the atomic bomb. And he's giving a little bit of a voice here. We'll carry on. For these physicists find themselves in a position not unlike to that of Alfred Nobel himself. Alfred Nobel invented the most powerful explosive ever known up to his time, a means of destruction par excellence. In order to atone for this, in order to relieve his human conscience, he instituted his awards for the promotion of peace and for the achievements of peace. Just stop again. It is an interesting note that he, that um, the Nobel Prize is, in case you weren't aware, was born that way from somebody who created, had his hand in creating weaponry and destructive forces. And there was a problem on his conscience for that, at least according to you know, Albert Einstein, who, you know, who noted that in order, this is one of the things to direct it into something more positive, this award was created. It's a beautiful sentiment, really. I'll carry on. Today, the physicists who participated in forging the most formidable and dangerous weapon of all times are harassed by an equal feeling of responsibility, not to say guilt. We cannot desist from warning, and warning again. We cannot and should not slacken in our efforts to make the nations of the world, and especially their governments, aware of the unspeakable disaster they are certain to provoke unless they change their attitude toward each other and toward the task of shaping the future. We helped in creating this new weapon in order to prevent the enemies of mankind from achieving it ahead of us, which, given the mentality of the Nazis, would have meant inconceivable destruction and the enslavement of the rest of the world. We delivered this weapon into the hands of the Americans and the British people as trustees of the whole of mankind, as fighters for peace and liberty. But so far we fail to see any guarantee of peace. We do not see any guarantee of the freedoms that, we, that were promised to the nations in the Atlantic Charter. The war is won, but the peace is not. I'll pause there. There's so much to dive into. You can imagine the physicists who were trying to serve their countries and stop the war and stop the Nazis from success, whose now guilt they feel as they go to bed at night and they think about the weaponry that they created and they wonder, what am I actually responsible for? You know, am I the guy? Am I the guy? Or whose responsibility does this lay? And I, I imagine it would drive them mad, the, the feelings and the thought of that, the weight of it. 
that you have been had a part in creating a weapon that is more powerful than mankind has ever seen up to that point, significantly more powerful. Um, it boggles the mind, really. And so he lays that out. And he also points out that it was the Americans and British who were trustees for the whole of mankind. And what does that responsibility mean? And, and do they still hold that? Are they still trustees for all of mankind? And obviously, at the end of a... If you, if you win a war using a weapon like that, what are the consequences? We'll read on. The great powers united in fighting are now divided over the peace settlements. The world was promised freedom from fear, but in fact fear has increased tremendously since the termination of the war. The world was promised freedom from want, but large parts of the world are, fa are faced with starvation while others are living in abundance. The nations were promised liberation and justice, but we have witnessed and are witnessing even now the sad spectacle of liberating armies firing into populations who want their independence and social equality and supporting in those countries by force of arms such parties and personalities as appear to be most suited to serve vested interests. Territorial questions and arguments of power, obsolete though they are, still prevail over the essential demands of common welfare and justice. I suppose that's a bit of the answer, isn't it? What happens if you win a war that way? Well, there's fear. There's, there's this, this unknown feeling. Yes, the war is won and the war is over. But there is a fear that lingers. And then there's the aftermath of the war, the squabbling, the power, the people with vested interests, the taking of lands and the armies that have to, you know, you know that are still ruling and taking advantage it's um, such a difficult, uh, a difficult predicament and a dramatic drama. Allow me to be more specific about just one case, which is but a symptom of the general situation. The case of my own people, the Jewish people. As long as Nazi violence was unleashed only or mainly against the Jews, the rest of the world looked on passively. And even treaties and agreements were made with the patently criminal government of the Third Reich Later, when Hitler was on the point of taking over Romania and Hungary at the time when Majdanek and Auschwitz were in allied hands and the methods of the gas chambers were well known all over the world, all attempts to rescue the Romanian and Hungarian Jews came to naught because the doors of Palestine were closed to Jewish immigrants and no country could be found that would admit those forsaken people. They were left to perish like their brothers and sisters in the occupied countries." Um, an interesting point there, isn't it? it? When everybody wasn't at risk, when it was just the Jewish people, you know, there wasn't much intervention. And those horrors that happened in Auschwitz and the, the gas chambers and all those things that we've read about and seen um, were going on. I'll carry on here. We shall never forget the heroic efforts of the small countries, of the Scandinavian, the Dutch, the Swiss nations, and of the individuals in the occupied parts of Europe who did all in their power to protect Jewish lives. We do not forget the humane attitude of the Soviet Union, who was the only one among the big powers to open her doors to hundreds of thousands of Jews when the Nazi armies were advancing in Poland. But after all that had happened and was not prevented from happening, how is it today? 
While in Europe, territories are being distributed without any qualms about the wishes of the people concerned, the remainders of European Jewry, one-fifth of its pre-war population, are again denied access to their haven in Palestine and left to hunger and cold and persisting hostility. There is no country, even today, that would be willing to or able to offer them a place where they could live in peace and security. And the fact that many of them are still kept in degrading conditions of concentration camps by the Allies gives sufficient evidence of the shamefulness and hopelessness of the situation. These people are forbidden to enter Palestine, Palestine with reference to the principle of democracy, but actually the Western powers, in upholding the ban of the white paper, are yielding to the threats of the external pressure of the five vast and underpopulated Arab states. It is sheer irony when the British foreign minister tells the poor lot of European Jews they should remain in Europe because their genius is needed there and, on the other hand, advises them not to try to get at the head of the queue lest they might incur new hatred, hatred and persecution. Well, I am afraid they cannot help it. With their six million dead, they have been pushed at the head of the queue, of the queue of Nazi victims, most against their will. The picture of our post-war world is not bright. As far as we, the physicists, are concerned, we are no politicians and it has never been our wish to meddle in, in politics. But we know a few things that the politicians do not know and we feel the duty to speak up and to remind those responsible that there is no escape into easy comforts. There is no distance ahead of proceeding little by little and delaying the necessary changes into an indefinite future. There is no time left for petty bargaining. The situation calls for a courageous effort, for a radical change in our whole attitude in the entire political concept. May the spirit that prompted Alfred Nobel to create this great institution, this spirit of trust and confidence, of generosity and brotherhood among men, prevail in the minds of those upon whose decisions our destiny rests. Otherwise, human civilization will be doomed. A, a lot of stuff that I, we could talk about, just, I mean, those last three or four paragraphs. And, you know, there's a lot of speeches and talks that, that I've read on here, I suppose. You know, you've, you've got Alexander the Great and, you know, Winston Churchill and, you know, Abraham Lincoln and kings and queens and all these amazing sp speeches that last for generations. And, you know, a great speech really, one of the main things, there's a lot of things that make it great, but, you know, context and feeling often add a lot to a, to a speech. And when I listen to the speech, I feel the weight of, um, you know, Einstein's, responsibility you know that's that's on his shoulders really as a representative representative of you know the jewish people and people from his homeland and as a physicist there's just so much weight and he's probably heard the stories and read the letters and had people converse with him and he's he's seen what's happened and he he is them well, at least he speaks you know at this moment he probably feels like he's speaking for them and so there is feeling in his speech, and it's what it's everything in this speech. If there's no feeling, then it's nothing. And um, you know, a lot to learn from this, from from the history itself, but also from the aftermath of the war and what that actually meant as well.
Um, I hope you enjoyed this speech um, from Albert Einstein, and I know I did. Um, if uh, you know, I, I look forward to hopefully reading a few more speeches from him because he he has given a few, and they you know they are worth going over. Uh, I look forward to speaking with you again soon and sharing more gems from our past. Until then, um, I hope you can apply these these speeches in your own life. And we'll catch up soon. See you later.